We're continuing tonight in our evening series in Romans. And uh, like you might expect from time to time in a hefty book like Romans, um, we have quite a a hefty number of verses uh, in the sense that there's a lot packed into these. Um, So let's, uh, let's get started. We're in Romans 6 verse 1 through 14. This is God's holy and infallible word. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin." Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. That's God's word for us tonight. The structure of the book of Romans is very clear and very well known. Sin, salvation, service. And we're in the very large salvation section and we've got some kind of transition going on in topic with what shall we say then? And some people say this is where Paul is starting his application section after explaining salvation by grace through faith. So now we're going to learn how salvation plays out in our day-to-day lives. Others describe this as the start of his section on sanctification. Paul's talked about justification. We've talked about that, that once-for-all act by which God frees the sinner, just as if I never sinned. If salvation is a coin, justification is one side, and the other side is sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. Justification is a one-time act, and sanctification is a process. We get saved from the penalty of sin, that's justification, And we get saved from the power of sin over our hearts and lives. That's what sanctification is about. The Westminster Catechism says that in justification, God imputes to us the righteousness of Christ 
And in sanctification, his spirit infuses grace. In justification, sin is pardoned. And then in sanctification, sin is subdued in our lives. As I said, there's a lot going on in these verses. And my prayer is that God's spirit would reveal through his word tonight just uh, what he wants each one of us to hear. So there's a big question and then a firm answer right at the beginning. Given what Paul had just said in the previous verses, and that's the end of five, which I'm sure you remember very well from last Sunday night, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So then in light of that, he asked, well, then shall we go on sinning that grace may increase. So what's, what's going on here exactly? It, it's kind of like God's Word is asking, doesn't the doctrine of justification by grace cause problems? If you take works out of the equation... Why should we care about doing good works at all? Won't free grace make lazy Christians who just sin and don't try to be holy? The Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation sure thought so. They were convinced that the doctrines of of grace alone and, and faith alone and Christ alone, they said they were dangerous. And that's why they taught justification and faith and grace and Christ plus some works. They very clearly taught plus some works. And the logic is you've got to give people some incentive to do good and be holy. Salvation can't be all free. It's going to create a welfare state where people take the free gift and then they just go on living like before, right? Paul has taken great pains to explain that there's absolutely nothing we can do to get salvation. It's a gift of grace. Jesus paid it all. That's what Paul's been telling us. But was that really wise? Didn't God maybe overdo it here with the salvation plan? He didn't leave anything for us to do. I mean, we all know if you don't make someone work for their supper, it's going to lead to a freeloading spirit, right? We all know that. And so it's got to be the same for salvation. But the answer to the question, will we go on sinning so that grace may increase, is by no means. Some Bible translations say, God forbid. So Paul is using the strongest language he has to say, no, No, we're not going to keep going on sinning. Our Heidelberg Catechism asked the same sort of question as Paul in Lord's Day 24. And in that Lord's Day, there are three questions and answers. It's really firmly established there from Scripture, obviously, that there's nothing we can do to make us right with God. God's reward of eternal life is not earned. It's a gift of grace. That's answer 63. And then question 64, but doesn't this teaching make people indifferent? 
and wicked? The answer is the same as Paul, no. But here's something to realize and to keep in mind. God's grace is so radical, it must lead to a question like this. If this question does not arise in our minds, we're probably not understanding the grace of the Bible. That's how scandalous grace is. It's given to people totally apart from whatever they've done, no matter how evil they are. So if you really understand free grace, this is a logical question. They say a huge percentage of lottery winners, and I don't know the, the real statistics or if they've really tracked this, but you know, you're a lot of these lottery winners totally squander their wealth when they earn their millions. I, I always, whenever I hear that, I'm like, I would never do that. But it's because they didn't earn it. They, you're just given it. They, they didn't have to, to work, work and sweat for that money so you don't appreciate it. You know, the same thing sometimes happens or you see it with like the second or third generation of extreme wealth when maybe the grandpa grew up poor and had to scratch and claw for years before making his millions. The next generation, if they're just handed it, can't really appreciate it. The grandkids going to be spoiled, have an entitlement attitude, won't understand the real cost that there was to achieve that wealth. And, you know, this is what what some Lakers fans feel is going on with that team. Dr. Jerry Buss, who was the owner, he died a couple years ago. He had nothing. He made millions in real estate, bought the Lakers, did this amazing job with the team, and now it's all run by his kids, and they really seem to be blowing it. So this is sort of transferring that idea that we commonly see and feel to the spiritual realm. If God truly just freely gives us salvation, it seems like there's no way we could totally appreciate it. We can't comprehend what it took for Jesus to pay the price. And so we're going to maybe squander the gift. But yet the answer is no. Free grace will not lead to more sin. It will not lead to continued sin. So why is that? How is that the case? Why is it different here? Well, the short answer is it's no because of how God's salvation works. Paul writes, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So When we are saved, we die to sin. We won't want to go on sinning, period. That's just how God designed it. And it's an interesting thing to say because we still sin. So how is it that we are dead to sin, right? Do you, do you feel, does that accurately describe your life? You're totally dead to sin? I think we might think, well, I don't know. I, I still sin. What does that mean? Well, th- verses 1 through 10, kind of exp- they, those are the verses that explain this. And basically, Paul is saying that we will not go on sinning. We will not want to go on sinning because 
God's grace has brought us into a new place, and God's grace has made us a new person. We've been brought to a new place. The language we get is of reigning and mastery, and it makes us think of a realm or a kingdom. The previous chapter uh, we saw last week talks about Adam and Christ, and we learned that when we have faith, we're brought into a new place. We're brought out of the realm of the first Adam and into the realm of the second Adam. We start out in slavery, in chains, and we've got a cruel master, and his name is Satan. But verse 6 says, we are no longer slaves to sin through belonging to Jesus. The tyranny of sin is over. Jesus has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And because of that transfer to a new realm where we're free from the tyrant's control, the answer is no to Paul's question. We're also dead to sin in the sense that we're new people. Verse 6 says the old self is crucified. Verse 4 says we may live a new life. And, and so we might say when we belong to Jesus, we're not the same person we were before. We won't be ruled by sin. The new order of grace, the, by definition, is not a welfare state, but it's a place where the attitude of gratitude will permeate. Real grace, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> real grace is both totally free and real grace does not create a spirit of entitlement. That's just how God has made it to be. Someone who has been truly saved by grace will not want to sin more and more, but will want to live for Jesus. And so, one application of these verses is simply this. Be who you are. Realize who you've become. Realize where God has brought you. You are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. You are in Jesus' kingdom now. And so when we're faced with sin and temptation, we say, yeah, but that's not me. Maybe that's the old me, but it's not me anymore. In, re in response, you know, let's, maybe it's something at home. Maybe, maybe something you're a parent, it's something your kids did or said, and, it, and it's a series of things. The anger flares up inside, but you stop. Hey, that's not me anymore. I don't have to lose my temper. I have the Spirit of God. I have the fruit of the Spirit. Knowing our identity in Jesus must guide our every thought, our every decision. All of this is because of the work that Christ accomplished. He has made this so. He has put us in the new realm, and he's made us a new people, as these verses up to verse 10 say in different ways and explain. And then, in verse 11, there's something interesting introduced. And it's brand new in the book of Romans. We haven't seen anything like this up to this point. 
and we need to do a very quick English grammar lesson to appreciate what's happening. You know what a verb is, right? Verbs are action words in sentences. What's the verb in the dog ran? Ran. Now, we're going to take it up a notch to high school English. Verbs can be used in different ways called moods. Indicative and imperative are the most common ones. Subjunctive, we're not even going to try to talk about. Imperatives are commands. Indicatives are just describing what's happening or has happened. The dog ran is a description. It's an indicative. That's just what happened. Run, dog. That's a command to that dog, whether or not the dog will listen. It's a command. That's an imperative. And and from what I understand, verse 11 has the very first imperative in the entire book of Romans. And we've read a lot of verses. The first command, the first call to do something, to take action. And that's kind of unbelievable if you think about all of these chapters. But it makes sense if you think about what Paul's been telling us. He hasn't been ordering us around saying, you know, you got to do this, you got to do that. It's been about what God has done in Jesus. And that's how it always is for the Christian. Nothing in our hands we bring. Our calling, what we do, any imperative, always flows out of the indicative. We're called to do something only when it's been made crystal clear that in terms of salvation, we can't do anything. Zero. That imperative flowing out of the indicative has tremendous implications for the church, for preaching, for teaching, for living, because our default tendency, Paul's told us about this, and it's true, it's a works righteousness, that we got to do something to get closer to God. Paul has worked very hard to make crystal clear this is not the approach to faith. So in light of that, when we teach our kids, Sunday school teachers, catechism teachers, uh, when, when we as pastors preach sermons, we have to be very thoughtful about how we teach the commands of God. A do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that type of Christianity, that's a problem. It's legalistic, it's moralistic. Imperatives only happen after the indicative has been proclaimed again and again and again. What God has done and His free grace, that's what we tell our kids and our students and our world. Only out of a firm foundation of that indicative, what Paul's been giving us in Romans up to this point, then our calling comes into play. And even back in the Old Testament, you so clearly see that pattern. God first chooses Abraham, and then He calls him to live for the Lord. He doesn't first lay into him about doing this or that. He first shows his grace. And the greatest imperatives in all of Scripture, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, they come only after God has called out his people, saved them from slavery, out of the Red Sea, made them his own. We we never want to give even a hint of an impression that doing anything will save us. 
However, now that we've been saved, now that we are dead to sin, the Lord calls us to commit ourselves to thankful living for him. And we see the start of some of those calls, those commands, those imperatives in these verses. He commands us first here, count yourselves dead to sin. So that's a calling that we have as saved people. Count yourself dead to sin. Why do we have to do that? Aren't we dead to sin already? Why that command? Well, one, one pastor suggests that maybe we have to do this because being dead to sin is a little bit like a privilege or a legal right. Though it may be true or in force, someone might not realize it or make use of the privilege. For example, someone could have a trust fund put into their name. We always talk about trust funds. I don't, I don't really know people who have that, but let's imagine this family that trust funds are going on. Give a trust fund, put in your name, but unless you draw on it, it's not going to change your actual financial condition at all, right? It's there, but you've got to make use of it. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great, great preacher in England. He talked once about how after uh, the Civil War, the slaves were emancipated, but hundreds, if not thousands of slaves didn't realize it. So when, when their old master would come near them, after emancipation, they would sometimes begin to quake and tremble and, and wonder if they were going to be sold. So you can be a slave experientially even when you're no longer a slave legally. They needed to count themselves free as they in fact were. God is telling us that if we are in Christ, we're no longer under the reign and rule of sin. So this is a command to remind ourselves Count yourselves. Listen to that word of grace again and again and again. Hear it in God's word. Hear it proclaimed. Talk about it with one another in studies so that you actually experience the new life and draw on it rather than it be an unused reality. Count yourselves dead to sin. Realize it. The other command here, it's in verses 12 and 13, it's that, we not let sin reign in our mortal body so that we obey its evil desires and we don't offer our body to sin. We offer ourselves to God. And these two are commands. And again, you wonder, if sin is dead in us, then, then why do we need to be told this? One explanation I heard is that it's as if we're living, we're in a kingdom that was overrun by an evil empire. God in Jesus has come and taken the kingdom and its citizens back. He's thrown out the wicked ruler, Satan. The old evil kingdom is destroyed. And that's the reality if we're in Jesus, in our hearts and our lives. But then there's still sin that we struggle with even if the power has been defeated and broken. And that sin that we still struggle with, it's like guerrilla forces from that evil empire still hiding out in the bush, trying to terrorize the citizens and wreak 
havoc for that new regime. And we're called to be aware of those guerrilla forces, resist the sin that still tries to take our hearts and lives, and fight back. Even though there's that pull toward the old, we are dead to sin. And we have, we've been given the power in Jesus to resist it. And we can make progress and become more and more holy. And that's inevitable for someone who belongs to Jesus. And so tonight, God's word is bringing us both an incredible promise. We are dead to sin. Sin no longer enslaves us. Chains are broken. We're free in Jesus. That amazing promise that's ours through faith, by grace, and a calling in light of that. Now, count yourselves dead to sin. Now, offer yourselves to God. May we receive God's amazing grace. May we live amazing lives in his grace. More and more. Amen.